Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 16 as we pick up in the book of 2 Samuel where we left off last November and for the next uh, six or seven weeks we'll be continuing in 2 Samuel. So now hear God's word from 2 Samuel 16. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my Lord, O king. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit has preserved it and communicated it, uh, translated it, and, and given it to us today so that now we can read and reflect upon your mighty acts in the world, in history, with your people. As we read and as we li listen and, and hear what you have done, uh, grow us to think more and more like you think and to become more and more con conformed to the image of our Savior Jesus. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, it's not a new observation that we populate our conversation with phrases that mean one thing, even though we're saying another. And we all know it. We all know that when we say certain phrases, we don't really mean that thing. We mean another thing. And we, we do it, but it, it's as, as if you know, people could just take us at face value when we know that that's not really what we mean. We use these phrases in an attempt to mask our real feelings. We don't want to appear to be offensive or impolite when in fact we're being offensive and impolite. And so we whitewash our speech with these disingenuous phrases. When someone says, I'm not saying this to be mean, but you know that what they're about to say is mean and they know it's mean and it's going to sound mean, but now they feel as if they're in the clear because they've sprayed it with this moral disinfectant. You know, I don't mean this to sound mean. If anyone ever says to you, with all due respect, the last thing in their heart is respect. They don't, they don't respect. If you... If you respect someone, you shouldn't have to say it before you lay into them. It should be evident that you respect them by the way you treat them. It's not personal. How many times have you heard that one? It's always personal. I'm a person. You're a person. It's always personal. It is always personal. How, what do you mean it's not personal? It is personal. It's always personal. No offense, but, well, why would you say what you're about to say if you knew that it could be uh, construed as offensive. Maybe you need to step back and think about it a little bit longer. Or in my humble opinion, that's one I really, really despise because you're being anything but humble. If you say in my humble opinion, you're not being humble. And then of course, in the South, we have this whole, you know, group of, of Southernisms, uh, particularly, uh, kept, kept in regular use by, um, 
uh, like our grandmothers and our, our aunts, which I heard use these phrases over and over, my own grandmothers. Uh, they, uh, I don't mean this to be ugly, but, <laughs> yeah, you do. Everything that you're about to say is ugly. I don't mean this to be ugly, but, you know, nobody in that family has ever worked a day in their life. I mean, how is that not ugly? I mean, you're being ugly, right? You're, you're not being nice. You're not building them up. And the ever condescending, bless his heart, of course, is one that is always condescending. You're not, you're not really having petty... Of course, in my family, it was, bless his little old pea-picking heart. And so uh, that the, the condescension was cranked way up to 10 uh, with every one of those. <clears throat> we get really good at talking out of both sides of our mouths and masking, or at least attempting to mask our true intentions. We might fool somebody along the way, but the Lord sees right through it. And in this point in David's life, he's surrounded by people who talk out of both sides of their mouth. He's surrounded by people who manipulate him and attack him with their speech. And so the question now for the next couple of chapters is, who is David's friend? Who is a friend of the king? Who is genuine? Who is his enemy? Who is out to get him? Remember where we left off in November, and I want to catch you up real quick. David's son Absalom has stirred up strife and rebellion against his father. Absalom was frustrated with the way that David dealt with Amnon, Absalom's half-brother. He was frustrated with the way that he dealt with Amnon's uh, uh, sin and, and the way that his father mishandled his brother's sin. Remember, his, his brother, his half-brother, committed incest with, uh, with uh, Absalom's full sister, Tamar. So frustrated with his father, Absalom kills his brother, and then goes off into exile. Now, more recently, Joab, David's nephew, has tried to work out some peace. And he's gotten Absalom back, but David won't even look at him. David won't even have anything to do with him. So Absalom is uh, even more frustrated. He asks for his father's blessing of peace, and then Absalom goes out to initiate war. Remember where we left off in November, we had just seen this. Absalom had gathered 200 of David's men. He tells them, we're going to Hebron to make a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, but he's just using these 200 men to make it appear to David that 200 of David's closest men have gone with Absalom and are on Absalom's side. These, these 200 men are nothing more than political hostages at, at this point. Um, David's most trusted elder advisor, who also happens to be Bathsheba's grandpa, is Ahithophel. Now, I understand this is kind of like, uh, these chapters are like one of these great epic novels or a, or a Russian novel where all these characters are all over the place and you have to keep them straight. But two that you really have to keep straight, and I'm going to keep reminding you to remember who they are, are Ahithophel and Hushai. I'm going to talk about Hushai in just a minute. But remember Ahithophel. He is uh, Bathsheba's grandfather, he is David's most trusted senior advisor. And before this chapter is over, it's going to say that the advice of Ahithophel is like the word of the Lord. That when Ahithophel speaks, everybody stops and listens. He is the wiser, older, senior advisor. So now Ahithophel at this point, though he has been David's supporter and David counsel, David's counselor, when Absalom comes and flexes his muscles, Ahithophel immediately switches sides. Ahithophel is now Absalom's counselor. And it's as if he's saying, I don't mean this to be ugly, but Absalom would make a better king. And that's the way he lives and acts. So David is surrounded by conspirators and manipulators. Those who have been his closest confidants, those who have been his closest friends, are now positioning themselves as his enemies. 
Now David has left Jerusalem. He isn't going to fight his son. He's not going to go to war with Absalom. And David does this partly out of humility because he knows that all of this is happening because of his sin. This is the Lord's judgment. These are the repercussions when you do like he's done. And David says, well, I just deserve this and I'm going to take what's coming to me. And on the way out of town, David finds that the men who are packing their bags and joining David in the wilderness are Philistines. Remember, David spent significant time among the Philistines when he was running from Saul. He made a lot of friends. He always had a, always had a consort of Philistines who were with him. And these Philistines go with him out to the, uh, out to the wilderness. So while his family is turning against him, uh, David has these Philistines, these Gentiles who are with him. Also, priests come out with David and they bring the ark. And he says, whoa, 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 we're not doing this. I remember the last time we brought the Ark of the Covenant out and treated it like a, you know, a lucky charm. Uh, we lost the Ark. That's what happened back in the days of Eli. We're not doing this. Take the Ark back to the tabernacle of meeting. You priests go back. Also, uh, David knew the priest's sons really well. And this is going to come up in the next chapter where the priest's sons are going to act as a go-between or as um, spies in what's going on with Absalom. He says, no, I really need you back in Jerusalem. You're, you're better to me back there than out here with, with me. And then another friend, the other, the other name I wanted you to remember. Ahitophel is the senior advisor who is Bathsheba's grandfather, who's David's closest confidant. But Hushai is another friend of David. Hushai is another counselor. And Hushai shows up and he says, I'm going with you. And he pledges allegiance to David. And David says, no, 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 actually, I need you back in Jerusalem too. And I want you to serve as a counselor to Absalom. And what I want you to do is I want you to subvert the counsel of Ahithophel. So if Ahithophel says one thing, I need you to say the opposite. I need you to create conflict so that Absalom's, uh, Absalom doesn't get led around by, Ahithophel's really smart, and Ahithophel could destroy everything if he wanted to. So Hushai, I need you to go back, and I need you to undermine the counsel of Ahithophel, and Hushai does that. Uh, so now in chapter 16, that's got us caught up to where we are in chapter 16. Now in chapter 16, David is confronted by a series of men who take advantage of his situation. And when you're in the middle of a bitter providence, I know many of you have experienced this because you've told me about it. We've talked about it. When you're in the middle of a bitter providence, often you will have true friends who come and share your burdens, as David had. David had real friends. But you will also have other people who will come and capitalize on your sorrow and make everything about them. It's this, it's this weird pathology that when you're suffering or you're hurting or you're sick or you're going through a bitter providence that like moths are attract to, uh, attracted to a light bulb. You get these, these people who come and want to make what you're experiencing about them. And it's a weird thing. We're going to see how this plays out. And I think you'll see what I, what I mean. Uh, David has these. And the first one that comes up to him is a man named Ziba. We've met Ziba before as well. Again, you got to keep your character log straight. But who was Ziba? Ziba was the servant of Mephibosheth. Ziba was the man that David set up to help Mephibosheth. Now that he, you know, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's lame son. David pledged to always protect and care for the house of Saul. Any remember, remaining members, especially the son of his friend, Jonathan. So David sets up Mephibosheth in such a way that he's never going to have to worry about money or food or shelter again. Mephibosheth set up and Ziba is the man who tends to Mephibosheth and cares for him. He's his caretaker. So Ziba now 
he's out in the wilderness with David. He just shows up. <laughs> Man, you're supposed to be back taking care of Mephibosheth. What are you doing out here? But Ziba is an opportunist. He's insincere. And when he comes out here into the wilderness, he pledges his allegiance to David, though he's already pledged his allegiance to Absalom. He's not knowing how all this is going to shake out. He's hedging his bets. Ziba doesn't care which side he's on, just so long as he's standing in the end when it's all over with. So we catch him saying one thing and meaning another. Ziba comes out, he curries David's favor, he brings him food and drink and donkeys, rich food. Where did he get all this rich food? Well, David paid for it, right? David set up Mephibosheth with all this stuff, and now, now Ziba brings this out. He brings bread and he brings wine. This is very similar to uh, Abigail's gift, if you remember that story from many months ago. Um, it's an attempt at communion. It's an attempt at appeasement. He's, he's offering this gift to David. And he's ingratiating himself to David by helping him and by appearing loyal in spite of his master Mephibosheth's lack of loyalty. Now, um, David had, had considered Mephibosheth a son and treated him like a son, but now Ziba is saying this. He's saying, David, Mephibosheth is back in Jerusalem hoping that in this process, the kingdom is going to be restored to the line of Saul. Mephibosheth is back there rubbing his hand saying, you know, if we, if we play our cards right, the, the line of Saul, the house of Saul is going to rule the kingdom again, and I'm the heir of all this. Well, of course, that was a lie. Mephibosheth said no such thing. Mephibosheth, that was the furthest thought from his mind. His father was Jonathan, and he shared his father's love for David. In a few chapters, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to find out that Mephibosheth wanted to get out of Jerusalem when Absalom was coming in, but he wasn't able to because of his disabilities. So Mephibosheth sent Ziba with supplies to go find David and go bless David, David and say, I, I love you, and I want, you to, I want to make sure you're being taken care of. All the time that David is away from his throne, we're going to find this out in a couple chapters, Mephibosheth has been grieving. He doesn't shave, he doesn't wash his clothes, he doesn't take care of himself. He's in grief until David comes back. But at present, David hears the report of Ziba, David believes his false report, so he transfers all of Mephibosheth's property and land to Ziba. And Ziba bows in verse 4, and he says this, uh, after the king says to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. Ziba says, I humbly bow before you that I might find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. But he's lying and he's manipulating the whole situation. He's told a, a, a falsehood about Mephibosheth. He's just trying to set himself up for success should things go one way or another. But even though he says, may I find favor in your sight, he doesn't stay with David in the wilderness. He goes back to the city to wait things out and see how things uh, develop. And if it turns out he needs to escape from Absalom, well, then he knows where to go. He's got a friend in David. But as long as David's out there and Absalom is out in, in, in the city, Ziba can play both sides. Well, after dealing with this member of the house of Saul, David has to deal with another member of the house of Saul, this man that we're about to meet doesn't sugarcoat anything. You know, boy, he really tells, like, he tells it like it is, except what he's saying is wrong. Uh, you know, we, we, we like, you know, this real straight shooter, right? No, this guy is hurling dirt clods and rocks at the king. Um, and sometimes in periods of distress or difficulty, you not only meet uh, manipulators and opportunists like Ziba, but you'll meet arrogant uh, 
self-righteous morons like the man we're about to meet. Listen to what happens next. Pick up in verse 5. <clears throat> now, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. His mouth, his mouth was a fountain of cursing. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. Yahweh has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should, thus, uh, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I had to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so Yahweh has ordered him. It may be that Yahweh will look on my affliction and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. You children have heard, and we've all heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, just he's got covering all his bases. Shimei throws uh, stones and words just so that he's sure that one or the other will make contact with David. Um, and he kicks up dirt along the way, and he's just constantly cursing the whole time. He comes out cursing, he follows them cursing. He calls David a killer and a worthless rogue. What's he talking about? Well, he's a member of the house of Saul. And remember, just as soon as David came to the throne, uh, Joab uh, acted rashly. Joab, David's swordsman uh, and bodyguard, who went out and dispatched Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and Abner, Saul's uncle. Uh, Ab, uh, Joab killed two members of Saul's household who were threatening David's throne. Now, David didn't want him to do that, and David did everything he could to separate himself, except David didn't restrain Joab's sin, and, and that might have um, uh, been something that would have prevented this from happening. But um, David was displeased with these actions. It didn't matter. Shimei was convinced that that was just a cover-up, and David is just pulling the strings behind the scenes, and he's in charge, and, 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 and he's responsible. He's behind all this violence. And so now Shimei's belief is that God is punishing David for all the bloodshed and all the violence that David has committed against the house of Saul. These rocks are more than just insults. This is a mock execution. What he's saying to King David is you ought to be stoned for what you've done. That's what you deserve to be, uh, that's how you deserve to be treated. This, this Shimei, when you read it, it's so um, darkly humorous, the way that he uh, acts. He, he's like a human volcano. He, and he's operating off of bad information. He thinks he knows the whole story. He thinks he knows what David did. He thinks he knows what God is doing. And he believes he's got this all figured out. But he's wrong upon every single point. God, he says, he says God has brought uh, the blood of the house of Saul on your head. Uh, David wasn't responsible for bringing down the house of Saul. God did that. God brought down the house of Saul. 
David is not a usurper. God gave him the crown. It is not God's will that Absalom be king. Not at all. God is going to judge Absalom. And yet Shimei is confident of everything that he's saying in spite of his ignorance. Have you ever noticed how ignorance and confidence just always go hand in hand? They, they, they go so closely together. Ignorance and confidence. You see, when you grow in knowledge and you grow in wisdom, you tend to develop a deep lack of confidence in yourself. You start to see that, you know, I don't know everything. There's a whole lot of stuff I don't know. The smartest people who are, are, are often the least confident in themselves, they doubt themselves the most because the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. The more you learn, the more you see that there's a whole world of stuff that I don't know. But stupid people don't know anything and are convinced they know everything. And that's what makes them so hard to debate or convince otherwise is that they don't even know how to follow an argument. They can't even, they can't even hold a thought in their head straight. And the Bible compares them to dumb animals. Psalm 32 says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. There's a kind of person who's like a horse, who's like a mule that will only come when you grab him by the head and bring him over here and say, you, 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 you're dumb, you're stupid. You, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to respond to argument. You're not going to respond to words. Proverbs 26 says this, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey and a rod for the fool's back. You know, a rod is the only thing a stupid man is going to understand. If you try to argue with him, if you try to instruct him, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your breath. You're wasting his time. Now, this is descriptive. This is not a prescription for violence. Let God use his rod to correct. But at least you know that the Bible has a category for this kind of person. In fact, David explicitly and mercifully refuses to use the rod or the sword on this guy. Uh, Abishai, who is... Joab's brother, what does that make him? That makes him David's nephew. Abishai gets real frustrated with his trash talking and he asks the king, why are we putting up with this? We don't have to listen to this. You just give the word, David, and I'll go over there and take off his head. And he will never need to buy a hat again for the rest of his life. He's, he's done with hats. I'll take off his head and he'll stop talking. That's the other thing that'll happen. He'll stop flapping his gums if I take off his head. And what does David say? David responds, oh, you sons of Zeruiah. Uh, Zeruiah is David's sister, right? Oh, you sons of Zeruiah, you and your brother Joab, you think every problem can be solved with a sword. This reminds me of Jesus. You know, Jesus had a couple of men, sons of Zebedee, right? Sons of Zebedee uh, who, who say, you know, Lord Jesus, we could call down fire on your enemies. Do you just want us to do that? So we'll just go pray and we'll call down fire on your enemies. And David says, no, we're not here to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And David's answer is very similar to the Lord's. He says, let him be, let him curse. This is obviously part of my punishment. And, and this guy is the least of my worries. My own son, Absalom, has turned against me. This is small potatoes, and he's not worth arguing with or spending any more time with. Well, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Hushai, the man that David sent to go subvert the council of Ahithophel, Hushai greets Absalom. And uh, we see how Ahithophel and Absalom are actively working to do David harm. You see, Ziba was an opportunist. Hushai was just a big mouth, and he was ignorant, and he didn't know what he was talking about. But these men, Ahithophel and Absalom, are deliberately tearing down David and his kingdom. They are malevolent. So let's pick up there, and I think we'll just finish the chapter from verse 15. 
Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So Hushai comes to Absalom and says, Long live the king! And Absalom says, Wait a minute, your friend is David, and your friend's out in the wilderness. Why are you treating your friend this way? And Hushai said to Absalom, No! But whom Yahweh and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. He's laying it on real thick. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence? So will I be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep his house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Hushai, David's secret agent, really pours it on, and he convinces Absalom that he's no longer David's friend, but he says, I am your loyal subject, Absalom, and it's, it, your, your wish is my command. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. So Absalom believes him and signs him up as a counselor. Even with Hushai on the team, Ahithophel is still the senior counselor. So Absalom says, okay, Ahithophel, what do we do next? What's the plan? Ahithophel says, here's the first thing on the agenda. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to sleep with your father's concubines. In a pagan kingdom, the harem of the king was like a royal currency. These women would pass from one king to the next. And whoever possesses the royal harem possesses the kingdom. That's the way it worked. Well, of course, this is not godly. This is not honorable. This is not just. This is perverse. This is disgusting. And God's people are acting just like the pagan idolatrous nations. They're picking up their practices. And this is not to be... Uh, 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 commended in any sense at all, of course. Um, but by sleeping with his father's concubines, Absalom is demonstrating the weakness of his father. In other words, if you can't protect your wives, you're nothing. You can't protect anything. This may have been a shrewd political move, but it is a gross sin on the part of Absalom. This was sinful counsel. This was sinful advice from Ahithophel. And Absalom, by taking his advice, is crossing a line here that's going to be impossible to come back from. This is a point of no return. He has no intention of reconciling with David after this point. This is, this is over. But this kind of decisiveness in the eyes of all of Absalom's wicked uh, supporters, this kind of decisiveness really plays well with them. See, Absalom is really playing to his base, the wicked, the perverse, the disgusting. They see him do this and they say, oh yeah, man, that's a real leader. Boy, that's the kind of man we need. He, he, he takes care of business. So they set up a tent on the roof of the palace so that everybody can see what's going on. Everybody can see handsome, virile, long-haired Absalom taking all the king's women into the tent one by one by one, and nobody has any doubt of what's happening there. Now, wait a minute, Absalom. I thought you were the great hero of chastity, the great protector of women. You protected your sister Tamar. You were a defender of women, right? Remember, all this started because Absalom wanted to defend his sister Tamar against his half-brother's Amnon's abuse. 
Amnon's sin of incest, though, was punishable by excommunication, by exile from the land. But what Absalom does by having his father's wife is punishable by death. Absalom's guilty of something even worse, to have his father's wife. But when you commit something like this, I mean, when, you, when, you're, when you're wanting what you want so bad, and you want something so bad that you're willing to sin and you're willing to abuse other people to get it, uh, there's no consistency in your mind. You're not thinking that way and you're not thinking clearly. So here on the roof of the palace, oh, remember the place where David saw Bathsheba? Where was he? It's on the roof of the palace, right? The place where David committed sin in secret. Now Absalom commits sin in public. And that's what Nathan said, right? Nathan said, while you sinned in secret, that's going to be exposed and, and now your sin is going to be made manifest in public. But let's put ourselves back in David's place as we, as we process this and think about it, meditate on this chapter. What do you do when you're, like David, attacked from so many directions at once, from people who are trying to capitalize on your sorrow and capitalize on your situation? I mean, just basically, what do you do when you're attacked by a crazy person like Shimei or, or manipulated by a person like Ziba or Ahithophel or, or Absalom? What do you do? Well, just a few things I think we can pick up from David's example here. Remember, first of all, remember God's sovereignty over all things and how he uses people like this to sanctify you. When David has this man cursing at him and throwing rocks at him, David says, let him alone and let him curse for so Yahweh has ordered him. So God determined that this man should be here at this time in history, in my life, saying these things to me and throwing these rocks at me. This is what God has ordained. God has ordered this. And God knows that what I need right now in my life at this point is this man right here cursing at me and throwing rocks at me. I think what I need is something else, but what I get is this man throwing rocks. And that's good. And that's what God wants. God hasn't gone on vacation. He, has, he hasn't just let this happen to me. God has ordered this. And so the first thing we do in a situation like this is we take inventory and we pray and we say, God, are there things I need to repent of? Are there things that obviously you're pointing out to me through this event? Is God using this person to correct me or bring things to light that I need to fix? Now, it doesn't excuse this person's bad behavior. God used pagan idolatrous nations to discipline his people over and over and over. But then when they repented, he judged the idolaters, didn't he? He crushed the oppressor. He crushed the tyrant. So God sovereignly uses wicked people to show us our errors. So David, does, he, David recognizes God's sovereignty over all this. And David also knew that when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at rest with him. So David knows, in part, I'm culpable for this unrest because of my sin. And so I know that I'm bearing the consequences of my sin, and this is God's will for me right now. So that's the first thing you do. You remember God's sovereignty over all things and that he uses people like this to sanctify you. But the second thing that you also remember is that you are not required to believe every verdict or every accusation brought against you. Sometimes friends who love you will bring correction and if you're wise, you receive their correction and you listen to it and you change and you repent like Nathan did for David. Nathan was a friend to David. Shimei is not being a friend to David to say the least. But you don't have to listen to the voice of the accuser who is only trying to do your, you harm and just take their words at face value. So consider who is attacking you and determine whether they really know what they're talking about. 
Shimei thought he had it all figured out, but he was wrong on every single point. You can look at everything he says and you can prove from, from scripture that everything he said was absolutely wrong. You don't have to listen to a guy like Shimei. God doesn't require you to listen to him. Ecclesiastes 7 says this, do not take to heart everything people say. Do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You know, maybe my servant should curse me every once in a while. If I'm being a good master, my employee might curse me. If I make him work, my children might get a little upset if I put them to work. Don't take everything to heart that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also, your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. You know that you have fired off in ignorance before you had the whole story before. You know you've done that. We've all done that. And there have been times where you've spoken out of turn. So know that other people do that too. And some people are not worth the brain power. So don't let every crossword send you into a funk or depression. You have to, you must let it go. You are not required to believe every verdict or accusation brought against you, especially if that is ignorant, ill-informed uh, accusation or a verdict. You see, there's a strange thing where people will do cruel things to you. People will do mean things and they go home and they sleep like a baby and you're up all night thinking about it and it's twirling over and over in your head and you can't let it go and, and you can't get over it. They're sleeping like a baby and they are not thinking about it again and it will never come up to them again. So what, why are you up? Why are you still thinking? They're not thinking about it. They've just done something cruel and dumb and uh, you need to let it go as well. Stop worrying. Third, when you're mistreated, don't respond in kind. If you're being mistreated, do not respond like the person who is mistreating you. It's a natural response though. When, when someone hits you, you want to hit back, especially verbally. If somebody hits you verbally, you want to hit back. You go for the jugular. And so you have this race to the bottom. Who can say the worst, meanest, nastiest, ugliest thing? You do that because you believe that if you don't defend yourself, nobody else will. That's what you believe. I must defend myself. Nobody else is going to defend me. And this person is just going to get away with their nonsense. But what does the Paul, uh, Apostle Paul say in Romans 12? He says, repay no one evil for evil. Don't ever do that. Don't ever repay someone evil for evil. If someone is cruel, nasty, mean, abusive, you don't respond in kind. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Whose wrath? Well, God's wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. But do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not respond in kind. That was David's confidence as well with Shimei. He says, it may be that Yahweh will look on my affliction and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And David knows I don't have to act as a judge today because God is going to judge all things. And David, at this point, he doesn't even know what's going on in the background with Ziba and with Ahithophel and Solomon at the time. But God is going to work all of that out because God is the final judge. God is always the final judge. God is going to judge Absalom in a very public way. So be patient because vengeance isn't, isn't yours. Vengeance belongs to God. Fourthly, remember this. Removing yourself from the presence of the reviler, getting away from the contentious man is a godly option. Removing yourself from the presence of the contentious man is a godly option. David left Saul's house 
when he was a boy. David left Jerusalem rather than engaging in bloody warfare with his son. David leaves Shimei. They keep walking, and Shimei keeps following. He keeps throwing dirt, and he keeps throwing rocks, but they just keep walking, and they keep walking until they're away from him. David leaves Shimei rather than dealing with him any further. What does the scripture say? Titus 3.10 says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So if somebody comes to you saying crazy things, say, look, man, I don't know, you may have a point, you may not, but listen, you're being really awful right now. And it keeps on. You say, look, I'm telling you, the way that you're carrying on is bad. It's, de it's, it's demoralizing. You're, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting everything. You need to stop it. You need to cut it out. You need to quit it. And then if he doesn't, then you're done. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition. How many times do I got to correct you for acting like a jerk? Twice. That's what Titus 3.10 says. After that, I'm done with you, man. I, I don't have anything else for you. You are not required to carry on endless debate with thick-headed delusional people. And I know you think I can save them. I can get through to them. Maybe, but sometimes you can't, and that has to be okay. There are people who just want to argue and just make crazy, baseless accusations, and you just have to let them be, and you have to let them go. Romans 16, 17 says, Note those who cause divisions and offenses and avoid them. Note those who cause divisions and offenses and avoid them. Proverbs 14, 7 says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when you don't perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Shimei didn't have lips of knowledge. He had lips of ignorance. He didn't know what he was talking about. So what do you do? You go. You just go. Putting up with it and just absorbing the hatefulness and the accusation is actually more harmful than just removing yourself. Well, one, you're giving a fool an audience, which is the worst thing for a fool because you're inflating his sense of self-importance and they grow in confidence. They become emboldened to treat other people like this. So go away. Avoid them. Reject their self-ordained authority. Take away their ammunition and don't let them have this power over you. Fifthly, most importantly, and this should go without saying, don't you be that person. Oh my goodness, don't you be Shimei. Don't act like this, right? <laughs> Do you have that level of self-discernment? Do you have that level of, of self-criticism? You see, you know what it's like to be treated this way. Why would you ever put somebody else through that? Other people's pain and suffering is not an invitation for you to come show out and act like a fool. Don't exploit them and use their suffering to get them to do what you want them to do or to put yourself in a better position. Instead, be a comforter. Verse 14 says that David and his people who were with, all the people who were with him, it says they were weary. See, you can only take so much rejection and hatefulness and attacks from your brothers before you really start to despair. And after the encounter with Shimei, it says they refreshed themselves there. Thankfully, David had friends around him who bore this burden with him. They could talk to each other and they could listen and they could pray together. That's how you help someone who's suffering. Do a lot of listening. Speak a lot of scripture. Do a lot of praying. Do I have to say, don't throw rocks at them? Do we have to say that? Don't throw rocks? Can we, I mean, that, that goes without saying, right? Don't be that person. And lastly, know this, and I'll close with this. Know that when you are persecuted without cause, when you are rejected and exiled for righteousness sake, you are sharing in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. Your suffering is not in vain. He's not turning a blind eye to you. He has not forgotten you. You are not abandoned by him. Psalm 27 says, even if my own father and mother forsake me, even the Lord will take care of me. Yahweh will still take care of me. Sometimes you're in a position where you can't escape and you can't get away 
from a reviler. You can't get away from a contentious person. So, and sometimes you have to stay for the greater good or for other people or for whatever reason. But you need to remember this, that that is not without cause and God is not turning a blind eye to it. And remember also, it is not in the power of any accuser. It is not in the power of any critic or any conspirator who has set themselves against you. It's not in their power to change what God thinks of you or to change how God cares for you. It doesn't matter what anybody says or does to you to make you feel worthless or deficient. Understand that has no effect on how God feels about you. Does that make sense? Because in the moment in the fog of war, you think, oh, what they're saying is true and that therefore this is what God thinks of me. No, don't, don't connect those dots. Don't despair. Don't give up hope. Constantly remind yourself of God's love and care for you. And this is why we get the Psalms in our hearts. And this is why we get the Psalms in our heads. And this is why we sing them and sing them and sing them and say them back to each other because we want them to be a part of us because they give us God's perspective on the tyrant and the accuser. And so when we're tempted to give up and we're tempted to despair, we cry out to God knowing that he will hear and he will deliver as we will see with David. David actually wrote a psalm when he's out here in the wilderness with these men fleeing from Absalom. And so I'm just going to close with that psalm, Psalm 63, and I'll read it without comment. I'm just going to read it and pray. But think of this psalm in the context of everything we know about David's life right now. And when he sits down that night, he writes these words. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice." My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go down into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we pray that same prayer and we ask you to stop the mouths of all accusers, oppressors, tyrants, and liars. And do that by shining the light of your glory, by the light of your word, by your Holy Spirit changing the hearts and lives of men so that we would be a blessing and not a curse to you, to your people, to your church. We pray that you would inspire us with this confidence that you are sovereign over all things and all events that nothing happens to us and nothing comes across our path without your willing it. So in these times of conflict, give us the ability to remember to take inventory and to confess what we need to confess and change what we need to change. But in the end, uh, to uh, remember that you have your purposes and you are the final judge. Vengeance is yours. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.